You are listening to Cracking the Rich Code with Miss Marilee, your insider's club from authors and entrepreneurs across the country, giving us their best to help us crack the rich code. And now, here is Miss Marilee. Well, welcome everyone to Cracking the Rich Code. I am Miss Marilee. Today, oh my goodness, I have with me Dr. Thomas Heemstra. He's a former F-16 fighter and squadron commander, a commander. And he writes his story, and he's, oh, my goodness, when I was reading this, it was, I'm going to be honest with you, it was a little difficult for me to follow in the beginning. And I'm trying to put two and two together with the, you know, the Air Force vocabulary and, and situations and things, but it was like a roller coaster. And I enjoyed it so much. And even afterwards, when I was setting up the show, I have to say that, it was like a pit in my stomach, so I'm I'm really excited to bring him on the show today and have you tell or have him tell you the story. Um, he's the founder of the Creators University. It's a think tank to help businesses with their innovation and creativity. He's authored a few other books as well: it's the Star Quest Character Education and Leadership Development Curriculum. That's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, anthrax. Yeah, right? Andrax, yeah. A Deadly Shot in the Dark. Oh. And The Change, Volume 7, which I am also a co-author in that. And the words, the words and bees of bold transformational change. So everything is about leadership. And um, I just, I love it. Dr. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ms. Mary Lee. I'm uh, honored and, uh, and looking forward to doing it, so. Oh, believe me, it's my honor. I, your experience took me to a whole new world. And that's, I mean, that's the beauty of sitting in my seat because I get to hear everybody's story and what they go through. But this, I, I think for me personally, I've had my own experience with the corruption. And so hearing your story, I'm like, oh, it just made me angry. Like in the pit, I'm just like, God, I feel you so much. So let's help the audience understand what the heck we're talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First, let's start with the, the uh, name of your chapter. It's called Wealth of Connections, Conquer Circumstances, Chaos, and Corruption. Amen to that. Yeah. So that in I, itself I like is the, a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they try to get a little alliteration in there. So we're, the, all the words starting with C there. So, but uh, yeah, our connections are are deeply important and uh maybe like you said on the first reading of the book they might have lost you here a couple of times but uh i think once you got the whole context there and you go back and there's a lot of depth there and it's the depth of our connections that really are what pull us through life so right and you know i w- it was um literally like trying to uh just understand like where you were going with it trying to put the pieces together not really under- it was like a movie you know, and then all of a sudden it just starts to <laughs> come together. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'm totally understanding this. And before I got to the end, I don't want to give it away, but I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And yeah. it made me want to start over again and read it again because yeah. I was trying to put the story together, but there were so many golden nuggets in here. Yeah. And, you know, the dare to be different. So, so what I'm talking about to our audience what Dr. Tom is doing is through his story, he's giving us rules. And I don't know how many rules were there? Uh, six rules. Seven rules. Okay. Yep. Seven. And the first one, it says, riches abound when you discover your dreams, boldly pursue your destiny, and with your connections, persevere through challenges of corruption. I mean, that, again, it's a mouthful, but if you read it slowly, it's like it, it is just so 100% true. I'm yeah. like, yeah, that. If anybody knows about their dreams and has the the gumption to have one, you gotta have a lot of courage to have one, because then you gotta be committed to it through all these challenges that you're talking about. Yeah. So tell well, us. When I was tell a, us. Ten years. I'm sorry. When mm-hmm. I was uh, ten years old, that's uh, when I had the dream to become a fighter pilot, and um, so a lot of the work that I do with. Uh, especially young people, kids, and students today, is to help them figure out what their dream is and then to pursue it with uh, with all they got because we are going to have some challenges along the way. So, absolutely. So that's a beautiful thing is to help them realize their dream and what it actually is. 
And I know by the story that, you know, you're a spiritual man, you believe in God. And, and so how do you go about helping them do that? Well, first, uh, you know, is connecting them with uh, with their dreams, right, and their, their passions. And so parents, of course, have the best vantage point to determine that. But then uh, teachers, you know, of course, have a lot of uh, time and effort to invest in, uh, and they can mentor their students to help them achieve their dreams. So so there's huge messages there for, for everybody involved around the, the child. And so, uh, it, but it's such an important process because, uh, you know, you see surveys, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago when I was working with businesses, you'd, you'd see surveys where 78% or whatever of Americans are disconnected at work. And it's because they, Mm-hmm. They don't, they're just floating along in their comfort zone, barely, maybe if you can call it a comfort zone, but they, they never question themselves what their, their dreams or what their passions were. So, so it's, it's where, you know, you really do something where the time flies by and you can't believe it and you're enjoying it so much, even if you didn't get paid for it, you would, you'd do it. You know, it's, it's those kind of right. things that fire you up deep in your soul. That's absolutely true. You know what, but I, I can't help but think, of my own situation. You know, when I was eight years old, I told my mom I would be an interior designer and that I would buy her a house and fix it up and everything. And so it, but I planted my own seed and I knew that that's what I would be. And I ended up actually following that, but it wasn't my heart. And I had, you know, started my business when my second son was born. And anyway, long story short, I don't know. It's like, we change how do we how do we know at such a young age that that's really what our heart is and not just an idea of what we want yeah i think it's uh well one of the things we teach in leadership is self-awareness you know and self-examination and how important Mm -hmm. that is to be a good leader but uh i think everybody has to have some uh some of that principle uh drilled down in their life so that they look back and go is this really what I want to be doing? And you know, that's mm-hmm. really where I started. When when was the time in my life where I was having the most fun and the and the most passion? Where I where I loved what I was doing? And, and you know, and as you get older, the the risk of switching gears to go pursue something oh my different gosh. Is, is harder, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. but you you know, if you know in your your heart of hearts that that's what you got to do, then. Uh, then you hope that you have the environment with the people around you to encourage you and, you know, help you get over the obstacles because there, there will be plenty. There's plenty. And, you know, in my experience, you know, with talking to people, most of us don't have that. We don't have people around us to support us, you know, to tell us how to do it or lead the way or, you know, empower us with, with encouraging words. You know, there's so much negativity. And I think you meant that, mentioned that in the book as well. You know, just how you're not going to have that. You, you just, how do you overcome it and believe in yourself? Yeah, well, for me, the connections, you know, were, were faith first and family and then friends and, and, of course, a flag because I was a military guy. But, uh, but you know, the deep faith, you know, we're talking, you know, the spiritual connection, you know, deep in your heart of hearts, mm-hmm. you know, that has to be there to to propel you. And then being in the, a family that, you know, can help. Uh, encourage and and not be dream stealers and dream killers. You know the negativity, like you mentioned there, that uh, can destroy your dreams and uh, destroy mm-hmm. your desire to pursue them. So, so you know mm-hmm. it's that family is critical and friends. Uh, you know same thing, especially if you don't have a family there, you got to have friends there. So, so one of the points yeah. I make towards the end of my chapter there is just to set up your own system of perpetual perseverance. You know which you know I mean you got to. Establish that framework, you know, and I give hints along in the chapter how to how to do that. And make sure that you know those are established: your faith, your family, your friends, and and make sure you you stay in that environment. I love that. I absolutely love that. You know, I'm thinking about these kids now. In this academy, are they just kids? Like what age group, or is it adults as well? Who who's in this? What? Yeah, well, we just started it um, several years back, and uh, we did a couple pilot programs with uh, with kids, really, at, in uh, uh, call it Creators University, and so it's a it was really an after school program or a summer program, the way we kind of modeled it, and it was just to see what kind of interest. And uh, I live in a poor Appalachian uh, county here in uh, Tennessee, 
uh, used to be one of the poorest. And um, so a lot of kids uh, here with, uh, um, you know, third-generation drug families and stuff, they lose track of even the hope of having a dream. And so it was really designed to see how well the process works and uh, and see if we can connect them with their dreams. And so, so it's been a success and uh, maybe not as big as I would like because we had pro- property that uh, we had ho- hoped to uh, build this uh, university, we call it. And uh, mm-hmm. so, so anyway, it just uh, challenges there. We've you know kind of put things on hold here and stuff. But uh, um, but anyway, we we know I, that the model I'm... works. We've proven that, and uh, so so it, mm-hmm. for Creators University, that's the the uh, giving back side, you know, to the children and and uh, you know just being an example that you know dreams come true and, and I'm proof of that being a fighter pilot and uh, and then helping them with their dreams and then the other part of it Absolutely. is the, uh, the business side helping with creativity and and innovation which uh, um, the world is lacking of course the last couple of years we've seen a little resurgence of uh, innovation but I'm not sure there's anybody out there that really teaches creativity well or or facilitates bringing out the creativity of people so that's what our expertise I'm- is. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I just think that there's just not enough of that. You know, so there's, there's, I know there's going to be people listening going, I need that. And there's others going, how can I start that? How do you start something like that? Yeah, well, we uh, I have an, another book that's coming out that's uh, called I-25 Innovation Drive. And so we uh, kind of pick apart uh, um, creativity and innovation there and, uh, and uh so, you know, we have the framework to, to help people do it. And it's not the same for everybody. So so it's just the framework, our model, to, to show people, to teach people, and then they can apply that to their business, their situation, and uh, what you know, what works in what areas for them and their, their life and their pursuit. And uh, so it's kind of adaptable to everybody, which is which is great because we celebrate the uniqueness of, of individuality. So. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. I love that. Okay, so let's um, – I don't want to get off track. I really do want to talk a little bit about the story because it's just its just so amazing. Okay, um, in rule number two, you say, caution, there is an enemy. Chaos seeks to kill, steal, and destroy those who can be devoured. Hmm. See, when I read that, it's number two, and it's it's so early in the chapter. You're reading it, going, "Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I can agree with that." So I'm, you know, continue to read. So I'm not really into the story yet, and it just gets so beautiful. I think that you know, um, we're going to start there. Tell me what you meant by that. Yeah, well, those are kind of the uh, the guidelines along the road. There, the. Uh, the guardrails, I guess, that I was uh, setting up uh, with rule one and two. First of all, that we're going to pursue our dreams and pursue our destiny. But uh, just the caution before we start the journey here, you know, there's an enemy out there. And uh, so there's going to be challenges, and the, he's going to fight you there to make sure that you don't achieve your dreams. So so that just to kind of, you know, get us before the journey really starts here, and then, then we go into the story. So, so yeah, and then I realize – you know, even really as I was writing this, that um, I knew that that was a principle I wanted to bring out, but then I realized that the kill, the steal, and the destroy were all aspects of some of the challenges of corruption that I faced. So so it became even more true the more I wrote, so, so it was pretty exciting. Oh, my goodness. It's wonderful. Okay. So now we have those two, about the riches abound and then the to be cautious. All right. We know that there's there's things out there that are going to hurdles. They're going to get in our way all the time. And this is really where our friends faith and and faith 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 come in because I believe that whenever the enemy comes in to devour, an angel is sent our way to say, no no no, I got you. <laughs> Takes your hand yeah. and shows you a way. Mm-hmm. We have to believe in that. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah th- go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I think what you're saying is really uh, true there. I think uh, that we do have uh, grace poured into our life to help us overcome those challenges, but uh, it just depends on where our focus is. If our focus is on the, the enemy or the obstacles or the corruption, the chaos, you know, we can get discouraged. So so it's really that network of friends, those connections that I was talking about that, that really give us the strength to, to persevere. 
Right, exactly. Okay, so now we have rule number three, and this is where this story actually begins. So rule number three is dare to be different and dare to make a difference. How do we follow that? Yeah, well, that was one that that my dad taught us uh, really early in life, and he was really the inspiration because he took us to an air show when we were little. And uh, so when I was 10 years old, I wanted to – got that dream there that I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And uh, I had a sixth-grade teacher who told me about the Air Force Academy, and so – so that's when the, the seeds were planted, and um, so it was just kind of a funny story as I look back there when uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was a saxophone player, so sitting behind me were the trombonists, and uh, one of the guys was uh, really, you know, kind of envious that I was, you know, I knew where I was going. I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, and I think he was a year older, and uh, he wanted to go there, I think, but probably didn't have the, uh, the grades and probably the inspiration, so, so... Uh, it was his job that he thought to uh, to be a, a derailer of my dreams, you know, and to discourage me. And so, so I remembered the uh, the time when with the trombone, you know, as sitting in the row in front of him on the saxophones, he had his little spit valve was right uh, strategically aligned with my shoulder, and so he could blow out his spit valve right on top of me there. So, so uh, I said, uh, dare to be different and dare to make a difference, you know, and. Uh, um, and I, I say for rule four there, the next one there that, like Dad said, spit happens. So, so <laughs> it's kind of a funny story just to put that those both together. That I realized uh, early on that that uh, persevering was going to be required. Yep, always. And it's really the only choice we have. We have to get up and do it again, whatever it is. We have to persevere. Yeah. Uh, on that dare to be different. You know, to me, when you first read it, it's like, dare to be different. I think that you automatically look outward to everyone else going, well, I mean, dare to be different than who and what? And, you know, it's like, how? (laughs) All these questions come up. But you have to realize when dare to be different is dare to be who you are. Be the best who you are, right? Yeah, yeah, and don't be afraid to stick out in a crowd, whether, you know, which is a very inspirational thing for uh, teens growing up, you know, because they have peer pressure. <laughs> so to fight to the peer pressure, they have to dare to be their own person, dare to be able to say no, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. dare to be strong. So it's going to make them stick out. But, you know, my dad used to teach us that. I think that's probably why we never got messed up with uh, drugs or anything like that, because he taught us early just dare to be different. So mm-hmm. and, uh, I like it. And, and dare and to could, make a difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can take that dare to be different to extremes and just be so wacko that uh, you don't connect with anybody. But you know, there's some obvious True. constraints there. But then, uh, and then dare to make a difference. You know, as you get uh, you know older in life, there and you know mature in your personality, you realize that it's it's not about me. It's about other people, and it's about having mm-hmm. an impact on others. So, so dare to make a difference in their life for a positive. Mm-hmm. And again, that takes self-awareness, you know, that personal development, to understand what your gift is, so that you can deliver it to yeah. make that difference, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, okay, so at ten years old, this the story starts when you were ten, and you're a sixth grade teacher. Now, you become a pilot. Then what? Yeah, when I went to the Air Force Academy, so uh, um, like part of the dream was there to become a pilot, you know, because that was the easiest. Uh, well, and maybe not the easiest, but the uh, the smartest route to uh, to become a fighter pilot, and because uh, you're pretty much guaranteed a, a pilot training slot after the academy, uh, where the other methods or ven- ways to go to to try to reach that goal weren't as clear. So, so I went to the academy, and of course, uh, there, uh, you know, that being, especially the freshman year was very challenging. So, so. Um, um, and then, you know, I had uh, some pretty good success there at the academy. I was a uh, squadron commander my senior year, so I had 120 uh, cadets in my squadron that, you know, I was in charge of their training and that sort of thing. And then uh, after that, went to uh, pilot training, and um, that takes a year. So that's a, a lot of people would say back in those days that the, the year of pilot training was harder than the four years at the academy, which um, – if, if, if maybe excruciatingly true. So I did the pilot training thing and then um, stayed in Oklahoma 
to be an instructor pilot because I wanted to teach other guys how you know how to how to become a pilot. Guys right off the street, you know what what being a pilot was all about, and uh, and I wasn't sure then that uh, I was kind of questioning whether the fighter pilot mentality was was me, you know, because uh, you'd hear hear about the stories of the fighter pilots being drunk in the bar and you know carousing and all that stuff, and I thought that's not me, and uh, so it was one uh, I went to. A, a speech by Steve Ritchie, who was one of our aces in Vietnam, and he said that uh, I know some truck pilot, truck truck drivers that are fighter pilots, and he taught that if you give 110 percent, whatever you do, that you're a fighter pilot. You know that's what fighter pilots are all about. It's, you know they they work hard, and they might play hard too, but they they just put everything they have into it, and so it kind of freed me up and gave me permission to pursue being a fighter pilot again. So so mm-hmm. after. A few years there in Oklahoma, then I got my assignment to the F-16, which is uh, very competitive because now you're competing with all the instructor pilots to get the same ratio of uh, fighters that are available. So so uh, wow. it, that took some uh, hard work and determination, and uh, but it was recognized, and they awarded me with an F-16. So, so then uh, the fighter pilot dream became wow. true. Yeah. That's, I mean, to me, just that alone, I, I just can't even imagine. First of all, the dream. It's just, to me, it's so big. It, there's so much responsibility and um, commitment involved. Uh, I, I just, uh, I applaud you for it. It's like, wow, that alone. Now we're not even getting into the story yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, my gosh. It's a long story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like, yeah. Um, no, I was just going to say, I mean, okay, so now we really start the story. So now we know about the F-16 and you're in. Go from there. Just tell us from there. I want to live it again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and I appreciate what you said at the beginning about, uh, you know, that you have a story of corruption too. And, and that's the reason I wrote this chapter as a story was uh, because everybody has a story. And uh, hopefully people can find themselves in some position in, in your story, if you're really connected with them, and then they can help plot their way to achieve their dreams too. But, but that uh, corruption, as we are still seeing in Washington, is uh, is pervasive in our society, and uh, people are always going to be trying to stop you from getting your dreams. So, uh, so anyway, after becoming a fighter pilot, then I went to uh, uh, Han Air Base in Germany, and uh, it was during the uh, uh, Cold War, so. Uh, the Berlin Wall was still up for, uh, I don't know how much of your audience uh, really remembers the, the Cold War there, but we were flying hard and uh, we were training very low and fast in some of our missions, and, and we lost several pilots. And um, so uh, some of the generals got involved with that process and kind of dictating how we should do our our flight procedures. And uh, anyway, so just to cut the story a little bit short there, uh, you know, the Tom Cruise thing from Top Gun, you know, never, ever, never, ever leave your wingman. When I went out one day, the weather was kind of marginal, and my wingman didn't come home. And so you can imagine the impact of that on uh, on somebody's life, and it uh, will get your attention. And um, and this guy was actually, uh, we were in a small German village. There was only other uh, uh, pilot that lived uh, in this German village was him, and uh, and he was in my squadron. We were friends, and uh, you know, kind of adopt the bachelor program. We had him come over, and he was a member of the family, basically. And uh, so that was a, a huge loss. And um, and then the, the corruption kind of invaded that process. When the uh, accident board, they do their investigation to try to prevent the accidents, uh, prevent future accidents. Right. And, and okay, so wait, the, I want uh, to slow down for a minute because I'm I'm okay. just, I'm loving it, but let's slow down yeah. for a minute. <laughs> Okay. Because okay, okay, so we're talking about your wingman. Wingman was Popeye. Yeah, his uh, call sign was Popeye. Yeah. Yeah, yep. Popeye. Okay, so Popeye. But in the story, it wasn't he flying ahead of you. Yeah. So yeah, we were um, usually this would have been a single ship mission where you're uh, out there all by yourself. And uh, but he was a young guy, just uh, just freshly um, blessed as a fighter pilot to go out and do this single ship mission by himself. So. So, but because of the context of the accidents that had happened, 
there in Germany, the uh, general officers in their uh, infinite wisdom uh, wanted us to fly this particular mission as a, a two-ship, two airplanes. And uh-huh. so we didn't really have procedures for that. But um, the smartest thing was to uh, put Popeye out front so, you know, we could pretend that he's out there by himself and making decisions by himself and, uh, you know, just like this, that mission would require. And then uh, and then after he was done, then then I would go out front and he'd follow me through my mission. So, so mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, then, that's how okay. we uh, set it up. So I was eight miles behind him, and, um, and the weather was really effy there in, in uh, Germany. Um, they actually boasted that they had the worst uh, weather of any U.S. Air Force base anywhere in the world, I mean, worse than Alaska or Iceland or places you think the weather's really bad. Can't imagine. Because mm. yeah, where, where the airport stood on the, the mountain there, you know, and stuff. So so anyway, we uh, um, were on the mission this day. It was pretty iffy weather, and Popeye's out front, and uh, you could tell the, the weather was deteriorating and probably hard for Popeye to still see the the ground or whatever, and so he did a, uh, we call it a route abort, where he stopped the route, and then uh, and then somewhere in there he, um, we think he might have got disoriented and lost track of where the ground was and, and ended up crashing there, so. Yeah. In, in the story, I was like, wait, what? Wait, let me read this again. <laughs> when? Yeah. When did this happen? How? Oh, God. Yeah. And then, okay. Mm-hmm. And you turned around. Is that right? Yeah, um, they, the base, uh, I got in contact with the base and told them that, uh, that asked them if they had heard from him because I couldn't find him anymore and couldn't talk to him. And so they suggested I go back and uh, look for him. And, uh, of course, you know, weather's really bad, so it was pretty hard to really look too much. But uh, um, anyway, so I went back, and then uh, as well, I was uh, circling around looking for him. That uh, I got a call from the base to, uh, to come home that the, a crash site was found. And uh, so, uh, you know, still don't, they aren't going to tell you too much over over the radio there that what's happened. So, you know, the whole way home, mm-hmm. just thinking, hope he was able to eject and everything's okay and don't know what could have happened. And, you know, all these things are going through your mind. You still got to fly the airplane and bad weather and get it home. So, um, mm-hmm. so, so anyway, uh, oh. got back home and then uh, find out that, uh, yeah, we lost Popeye, so. So, mm, gosh, it's, yeah, That's pretty like, tough, you know, because it really is a brother in arms thing. That the camaraderie is so amazing when you're, you know, working, living, fighting hard together, and training hard to, you know, be prepared one day to to die for each other or, uh, you know, to die in our mission or whatever. And then, uh, but then, in peacetime, you know, it's still hard to to lose a buddy who's that devoted and um, is that close. So. Mm. Gosh, I can't imagine. I just it just is heartbreaking to me. Okay, then um in your story we're talking about your marriage, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So uh so you know, I said kill, steal and destroy and realized that uh hmm, that was kind of the kill there. The uh the the stealing was uh really just uh um yeah, I got married uh, right out the at the academy, so pretty young to be getting married there twenty one or twenty two whatever it was and uh, and so uh you know we were kind of people used to call us Barbie and Ken, so you know it was kind of the idyllic you know couple you would you know we thought uh i mean we our discipline we always say we'll never say the d word you know we'll never talk about divorce and uh, and so until we became victims of it there so uh, so that was a tough uh, process for, of course, on, on all fronts there. And so you're, you know, where you're you know, talking about faith, family, and friends. Well, the friends and the flag were kind of iffy, you know, because that uh, accident board, the generals, you know, fabricated right. statements there and the uh, the uh, accident board. So, uh, and then uh, and then now with the, uh, the family, now that's uh, in question. And, you know, of course, everybody sometimes questions God, you know, why, why are you doing this to me or whatever type of thing. So, so, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, and then, you know, I battled for my daughters. I wanted uh 50%, you know, shared parenting. And, uh, so went to battle for them. And, uh, after at Germany, I'd gotten out of the air force and, um, still wanted to keep flying F-16. So I got hired by the air national guard to uh, part-time be a uh, F-16 pilot. But I, 
also got hired by an airline, and so as an airline pilot, and uh, so fighting fighting for shared parenting to uh, to be a a dad involved in my girls' lives uh, um, was kind of a another devastating aspect there because the uh, the judge was very anti father or anti airline pilot or whatever they wouldn't support shared parenting and uh, so that whole battle with a corrupt family court system and you know corrupt lawyers and uh, just to you know feed dollars to their their system there was a very discouraging process and my daughters I'd uh, one of them was in uh, junior high and uh, the older one and and so I coached uh, you know her volleyball and basketball teams you know for two two sports for two seasons there and for two years and uh you know it was kind of frustrating when you you know you can't get other dads to come to the home games you know and I'm doing home and away and practices and so right. and airline. and then you know some judge just arbitrarily says well you know you, you're not going to be allowed to to be a father in their lives so so um Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that corruption yeah. ended up in a devastating divorce and uh, um, in a disconnect there with my daughter. So. Mm-hmm. You're saying a vicious lawyer with with a corrupt history and agenda for money. Yep. Yeah. Plus other things sought the destruction of the marriage and family. That is so true. They don't care. It's all about the money. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and okay. So, and I think, oh, I'm sorry, I think a lot of people can relate to that, but, uh, you know, um, yeah, so that's why in the story, you know, I wanted to connect with the people that have been discouraged through that process and uh, and uh, give mm-hmm. them hope. Now let's go back to what happened to Popeye. When you learned what happened and the the facts about the matter, tell us from from that that point. Yeah, well, there's some things that they you know couldn't really figure out in the action board what uh, what might have happened, but uh, from the action board, there was three different squadrons at at Han and. Uh, so he didn't necessarily know the pilots well and the other squadrons, but they had picked a couple of pilots from uh, the two other squadrons, and they were on the accident board. So, so they, just out of their own sense of integrity and and uh, you know camaraderie, I guess, for uh, pilots and fairness, uh, they kind of filled me in on what was going on a little bit. And so during that accident board process, they actually fabricated statements in there that they were not based on fact or evidence. And, uh, you know, it was really, I mean, to, in a word, they were blaming me for the accident, so, which is oh my gosh. ridiculous. So, so, I mean, it was uh, bad enough that, you know, to lose lose him, but then uh, to be blamed, you know, this was a guy that, you know, was a family member, you know. Um, right. So, yeah, I was kind of fed up with the Air Force, and uh, so uh, I got out uh, leaving Germany to uh, – but I couldn't give up the F-16. I still had to fly and go fast. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> wow, I, I, did, I did get out. Okay. Just, uh, so let's let's talk about the um, the part about the anthrax. Where does that come in? Yeah. So, so um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, during that divorce process, the last year or so, uh, um, we knew that um, the military was doing a mandatory vaccine program with anthrax to uh, protect against the enemy if KC decided to use it or whatever. So all 2.5 million troops were going to be vaccinated with this shot. And it's pretty serious because it wasn't wasn't uh, just one shot. It was you get one at the zero-week point, then one at two weeks, one at four weeks, then at six months, then at a year, and then a year and a half. So six shots just to get you going that first year and a half, and then annual boosters after that. So... So you, your body's basically a, a pin cushion, you know. And oh gosh! This this anthrax vaccine was was linked to Gulf War illness. So we, you know, we've kind of forgotten a little bit about that. But uh, they used uh, vaccinations then. They uh, burned the shot records, so a lot of veterans couldn't prove that they had taken the shots or whatever. But uh, but anyway, a lot of people got sick and died from Gulf War illness, and uh, and. Um, anyway, so the shot was linked to that, and so there was hearings going on in Congress about this new shot program under Clinton's presidency. And um, um, I was uh, the squadron commander now in Fort Wayne, so um, God had blessed me with, you know, success there in my career. And uh, um, so I, again, I have about 30, 35 fighter pots uh, working for me, or that I'm responsible for, and. Uh, 
So one of my young lieutenants came up and said, uh, did you hear where they're, they're having hearings about this shot and, and they want us to take it? And uh, and we're getting ready for a deployment, but that was like nine months away. And uh, so they wanted to uh, give us the shot early so that we show that we're really ready to go. And uh, so we mm. started doing some research and found out what was really going on. And I invited a, uh, a doctor who had treated people in Rhodesia or Zimbabwe nowadays, but uh, the same you know country during their civil war uh, that had they'd used anthrax and poisoned a lot of people back in those days. So she had actually treated them. She was an American doctor. So I invited her to come to our base because she had also been involved with the hearings and investigations by Congress. So, so, uh, so yeah. she came to the base and, you know, my goal was not to tell anybody what to do, but my goal was to inform them. And uh, so it turns out this uh, anthrax, the way they were using it was actually a, made it a investigational drug, which by law requires informed consent. So, so anthrax has been used by veterinarians, but it was only for skin contact, so from animals or whatever. But uh, um, the military was using it for inhalational anthrax, so if you breathe it in because the enemy used it as a weapon. Well, if you use, according to FDA laws and, and laws in the United States, you can't experiment on the troops. And um, anytime you use a drug other than its original intent, it requires informed consent by law. So, so the military was required to tell us everything bad that could happen to you. And at the, the time, there's only about six things listed on, on the product label. Well, after our fight, you know, they ended up including about 83 uh, after that, you know. But just because we raised our hands in protest, you know, and did the research. And so, um, so anyway, and then so not only were they supposed to inform you, but then you had, you know, the right to say, well, I'm not going to take it. So, so uh, but the, uh, the military uh, was going to court-martial you if you didn't, and uh, they were going to force us to take it. And so uh, Congress invited me to come and testify uh, to their um, oversight committee, and uh, this was in uh, uh, September of '98, I believe, and then again the second time in October of '99. So, so I, as a part-time soldier, you know, I'm in a coat and tie, like uh, you know, the militia in George Washington's day, right? So, so I'm not, you know, a full-time military guy, so I can lobby Congress or do whatever, you know. So I went in a coat and tie, you know. And of course, the generals are in the uniform behind me as I'm you know, trying to testify and uh, so I'm just telling them the truth not only how dangerous it is because I had met people that were sick and knew people that had died and uh, and told them that this is a, a national security issue because half my pilots are going to quit so if we're going to be forced to take a shot because a lot of them were airline pilots and they weren't going to risk their career based on you know stupid shot you know so so wow um, yeah okay. oh yeah pretty so, intense story and then uh um, and then after that, uh, let me recap I, for a minute, though. Let me recap okay. for a minute. Okay. So now we're talking about okay, you're you know obviously um, the F-16 fighter, and then we lose Popeye, and the thing, then you're blamed for it. You find out the yeah. truth about it, come forward, and you understand the corruption in the system, and yeah. then of course the problems with your marriage, and you find out the yeah. corruption with the, the court system as well. And losing your your you know the custody of your kids you know your girls, and um, you know losing a hundred thousand dollars later in cost in court costs ridiculous. Yeah. And then yeah, now man. we get to this. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. I didn't on paper I didn't lose custody of my kids, but they wouldn't. And you know, so it was joint custody on paper, but they, of course they wouldn't enforce visitation you know with me. So in, in essence, I did lose. Yeah, lost oh. the connection with them anyway. But uh. the control is is just ridiculous. It's so heartbreaking. So now we come on this anthrax situation, as if it's not enough already. And you're in charge of all these men, and they start quitting, right? Because they're not going to. Yeah. They're just not going. Yeah. Mm. yeah. After we brought that doctor, civilian doctor, into our base there, which my boss there, the wing commander, didn't want her to come on the base. So, so we. Ended up having a pizza party off base, but uh, so I, after she, you know, showed us the flies and the, showed us the research and showed what was really going on uh, at the end of the meeting, so I knew how I had to represent my guys. I asked them 
what what are you going to do? And so half of the guys, I think it was about 20 out of 35, were going to quit. So, so you know, wow. the military's already invested at least $10 million a piece in these guys, and they're just going to walk away because of a, a stupid shot. Plus, some had experience from the Gulf War. So we, we need yeah. that experience, you know, to keep the, the squadrons experienced, you know, and be ready for the next one. So so it, was, mm-hmm. it would be a devastating loss. But we were on the beginning stages of that 2.5 million troops. So if you did that at our base and then it was duplicated around the country, I mean, it would be hundreds of millions of, of ex- dollars in experienced assets that we'd be losing through these pilots. So. And sure enough, we did we did lose over a hundred, maybe close to two hundred on that whole program. So. Mhm. So then you came forward as a whistleblower, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, so they started punishing me there for for doing that. You know, every time I go to Washington and uh, and uh, tell them what they wanted, to, you know, what they wanted to know. And then uh, so I ended up, uh, you know, I got retirement orders basically in the mail, and uh, so my career was over. And so. So during that process, I had filed a IG complaint, Inspector General complaint, to uh, you know that they, and this was with uh, Secretary of State uh, Cohen or Secretary of Defense Cohen at the time, and um, which they just ignored. So sat around for a couple years, and by then we had a new president, um, President Bush. So I filed a second IG complaint with him and uh, saying that the IG complaint process was corrupt because they wouldn't <laughs> even answer. Well, so they quickly answered the first one, but the the second one with President Bush went to the Justice Department, and it's still there today. In fact, oh. I uh, just sent sent a letter to uh, sent a letter to President Bush and Senator Blackburn uh, a year ago after going to her office in D.C. Uh, to visit with her because she's you know has a President Trump's ear and she's on the Veterans Affairs Committee. And so uh, I just sent a second letter mm-hmm. a few day, a few days ago go to her to, if we could finally get this resolved there. So and, oh you know, my the punishments God. continued. Yeah, punishments continued. I turned 60. You know, that's the normal retirement age for uh, a guard, part-time guy, where you're start, supposed to receive uh, your pay, and uh, and they they weren't paying me. So so that's why I finally went to her office last year and said. Could you just please help me get my what I earned, you know? Because you know I did my 20 mm-hmm. years, and so they did owe me some retirement pay. So, so. but anyway, they're not giving it to you. Con- yeah, it goes on and on. So we'll see what happens this time around. <laughs> so with all of that, you still in this chapter give so much um, value with you know. Um, pushing the idea of following your dreams and the integrity it takes to do that, you know, and, and through the self-discovery of all of this adversity, you know, it's so critical. And now you're helping other people. Yeah. I, I, I still yeah. can't imagine. I'm, I'm like living your life through these pages and I'm thinking to myself, just wow. You know, it really expands our small little world to imagine you being this fire, you know, the the a pilot, a pilot fighter, and then flying all over the place in this terrible weather, responsible for so many people, and then seeing the you know the death of the of Popeye, and then the it just it's to me I'm like oh my gosh it breaks my heart, yeah. and I think people just to come up to know you and wouldn't know anything about this story you wrote in the book. Wouldn't, wouldn't know any of that, but just the good that you're doing to help other people find their passion and live it. Yeah, when you can imagine the, uh, as a parent yourself, the uh, the heartbreak of that whole process was uh, almost oh, unbearable too, I'm, you know. Yeah. And how old are your girls now? They're, uh, let's see, 34 and 30, I think it is. So and we so still haven't... I would imagine this whole experience has affected your relationship with them or, or how is it oh yeah yeah it's still there's still a huge disconnect there so Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. no it's so wrong what they do what they do to us i mean yeah. the corruption the, the it just and it's time time is so beautiful we can't get it back yeah yeah you're right mm. and, uh, so i hope to encourage people that uh you know, to stand up to the, the corruption, to 
stand up to the chaos, you know, and not let mm-hmm. circumstances get you down, but, uh, you know, have those connections that keep you going. And, uh, and, and I think you can conquer even, even if it may not look like on the outside that, you know, you, and then become a general officer like you could have, but, uh, um, but I'm content in, uh, in my circumstances and I'm still successful. And so. Absolutely. You know, um, through all those adversities and everybody's got their own, whatever, you know, the measure, you, you, you stayed in here. It says fairness and justice are not guaranteed. Yeah. That is so true. And yeah. a lot of people weigh heavily on that. Yeah. You know, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. It's like you can't <laughs> can't bank on fair. And, yeah, and justice, I, forget it. Let it go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what my perspective was 10 years ago or 20 years ago on, on that, but, you know, I it's probably a process of learning and maturing too that uh, like you said you got to let it go that that's not what it's all about and uh, you can still dare to make a difference that's what i challenge and encourage people to do and uh, and i know know they will especially with some of the, mm-hmm. the clues and the little crumb, crumbs i've uh, left along the path mhm yeah and um <clears throat> you said in here and this is beautiful. And this is the villain. The villain is camouflaged in many life disguises and distractions like fame, power, celebrity, success, riches, or alternatives like alcohol, sex, drugs, and food. So that reminds me of something out of Outwitting the Devil. Are you hmm. familiar with that book? No. Uh-uh. What's oh, it called? yeah, Out- Napoleon Out- Hill. Oh, okay. Outwitting the Devil. Oh, okay. So okay. out, he Napoleon Hill has a conversation with the devil that is so enlightening and infuriating. And you end up thinking, how dare you do that to me? And it helps you to overcome these obstacles because you know the devil is at work. And that's mm-hmm. literally, you know, what you're saying there to be careful because it is disguised that way. And, you know, I think people, I mean, just humanity in general, we, we, we are... Uh, subject to that glitter you know we want that but you don't understand what's in there yeah. and you don't understand you know it's like it's not all that it's cracked up to be and honestly the um the self-discovery is just such a beautiful thing that so many people don't give themselves they don't afford that they, they're just literally following that the power the success the money who is the most popular it's like stop yeah. But your happiness is not there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. critical to uh, to good leadership, you know. So the self awareness. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and you know, like yes. you're talking about the enemy there. He he's the great counterfeit, right? So he makes it look like mm-hmm. it's the real thing, and it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Um. He said, "Success is best served when self discovery is accomplished." First, it's so profound. I'm going to read again. Success is best served when self-discovery is accomplished first. That's exactly what I was talking about in that in that last you know sentence. Like we're watching the feed, we're scrolling, we're swiping. Everything is a three-second attention span. What's the next thing? Trying to find a dollar, and you have no idea who you are. Yeah. And that self-discovery is such a beautiful thing. That's where your gift comes. That's how you're able to actually be the difference that you're talking about. It's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I, of course, can't take a lot of credit. There was a lot of inspiration there that, uh, of course, for my faith, uh, I think, helped put this all together. But uh... hmm. You have to have that. You have to have faith. And I think that, you know, as a whole, so many people are lacking that. And here's one of the things that I say. People will claim to have faith, but their behavior doesn't show that at all because they don't get out of their own way. And they don't give themselves the time for that self-discovery that you're talking about. And you got to have faith to, to face that fear. What are you afraid of? What's the worst that could happen? Just move forward. And then when you move forward, you're like, oh, my gosh, I did that. I did that. Well, yeah, you just discovered something new about yourself. <laughs> you can yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, right? of course, that fear, yeah, that's, that fear is uh, from the enemy, too. And, you know, like I said, him being a counterfeit there, you know, the acronym for fear is the false evidence appearing real, right, F-E-A-R. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just false evidence. So, mm-hmm. designed, designed to said, scare you. That's exactly right. Your mind gets the best of you. That's where he lives. He just, all these what if, what if, what if. And it's like you got to just make peace with that what if and just say, I don't know. We're going to find out. And that's when you said learn to fail forward. Mm-hmm. Fall back on those guiding principles and values, and most importantly, never, never give up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As, as, you know, as an entrepreneur, I can't stress that enough. But it's mm. like never give up. It's Once you find what you were talking about is finding your dream, your passion, and then having the courage to move forward. So interwoven through your whole chapter, it's like you have this, this heart-wrenching story, but there's so many golden nuggets. It's really worth a read. I really appreciate you. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, thank my, you. Uh, yeah, my uh, my grandma on my dad's side, uh, Grandma Heemstra, was my most faithful letter writer when I was at the Air Force Academy, and she must have had a pretty good glimpse of how hard hard it was going to be there because every letter that she wrote to me, and she wrote just about every week, I think, and uh, she always said, never give up. Of course, uh, you know, her, her age, you know, she went through the, the Churchill years and when, when he said it, but she must have known the importance of that because she said it every letter, never give up, never give up. Mm-hmm. You know, there's <laughs> there's so much satisfaction in that, too. Last night I was um, working on a project with a friend of mine, um, Dr. Don, he's actually on the line. And uh, he, you know, he just kept saying to me, too, don't give up. We're almost there. We're almost there. Yeah. You're not giving up now. And sometimes you just need that. You know, you just you need that somebody to say, don't give up. And yeah. at the end, you know, we were successful, and it was such an accomplishment. I just felt like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> one thing. Yeah. If just one thing went right today, it's an accomplishment. You just feel like, oh, and what a success. Yeah. Don't give up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got your whole life here. Don't give up. Yeah. And then, okay, so rule number five. He said, we are created with a purpose, wonderfully crafted in the womb and fully known by the creator. His workmanship with gifts, talents, skills, abilities, dreams, a calling created for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we might accomplish them, is called our destiny. It's our destiny. Yeah. Yeah, without that self-discovery, you wouldn't have any of those. Yeah. Yeah, so that the first part of the verse, you know, is based in Psalms there that were uh, wonderfully crafted in the room and, uh, of course, fully known by the Creator then. And, but then the uh, last part, Ephesians 2.10, you know, I call it the destiny verse that uh, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, you know, so. So that's that's the destiny, you know. I didn't ever think before I had heard that talked about was that uh, um, destiny was really even a, a spiritual concept. I thought well, there's, that word's not in the Bible. I've never seen that before, but but uh, mm-hmm. it definitely is defined right there for us in Ephesians mm-hmm. two ten. I love it. I absolutely love it. Now with these uh, that's kids that you're helping, hmm. mm-hmm. that's why what, and that's why it's so important that. We know our passion, and we do that self-discovery because if we don't figure it out, then we're not doing the things that we were created here to do. You know, not playing mm-hmm. our our role in the team there. So, mm-hmm. so I was gonna um, ask something, but first, with that discovery, you just have to really ask yourself, what do you, what do I want? What do I want? When there's no boundaries, no limitations, no no concern for money, what do I want? Name it. And then have the courage to go get it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I would add too, maybe tempered by, like Simon Sinek says, uh, start with why, right? If, mm-hmm. you want, if you want riches, like the cultural rich code or, or great, uh, uh, mm-hmm. cracking the rich code, if you want the money, well, why do you want money? You know, if it's if the motive's right, then maybe it's okay for you to have money. But if the motive's wrong, well, then maybe you should dig a little deeper on what you really want. Right, if it's just money for money's sake, absolutely. 
Yeah. So, okay, we, we're down to um, just a few minutes left, and I want to ask, with these kids that you're helping, what do you do when they're lacking in faith? Because to me, you have in faith, believing that they can actually achieve whatever you're you're teaching or you know instilling in them. Yeah, just um, just try to instill principles and values, right? And uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be Bible and verse and talking about religion, you know. It's uh, but you're still trying to connect with them on a spiritual level. So, as a leader, you Mm -hmm. know, recognize that you know there's many different aspects to our connections and you know there's the mind and the mental part you know there's uh, the heart and soul and which the mind will and emotions you know you want to connect there but then you also want to connect with the spiritual and that's like the core values and so uh try to connect with them on uh you know different values and what's important you know so mm-hmm. uh, and, and start with that and then build on that you know um let me take a, a let, me, let me add Pastor Don on here. Let's see if he has anything to say to you. Hmm, I can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Pastor Don, you there? Yes, yes. Greetings to the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Pastor Don Jr., CEO, and uh, we salute you for your service. And I've been listening. You know, I I live by the same cold, man, and I, I didn't know it. I should have been a flower pilot, but uh, I, I fly <laughs> a different way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fly through the internet like me on the Matrix. So oh my God, man! I just love your story and your energy, and for you to really break it down, man. Just the way that the government works and how things work behind mm-hmm. the scenes. See, I believe in the process above all. And my question is: after all your hard service and seeing the things, how do you feel that the social media has changed? the way that we move is interact with people. Cause when you're in a foxhole and you're overseas, you're far away from your family. Now they got video and everybody's a cameraman and everything's on demand. But when it comes time to send a granny, a uh, happy Thanksgiving, you just send a picture of a, a Turkey. And it's not even a picture of a real cooked Turkey. It's an emoji. So uh, yeah. how, how do you feel about the, <laughs> about the social media? Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Well, I'm a, uh... Uh, a little slow on using social media myself there, but um, but I think I'm very cautious on it. So uh, so being slow probably is uh, reflects my caution there because uh, you know I'm trying to really you know teach and help people with uh, leadership. That's what my doctorate is in is in leadership. Is uh, um, you know connections you know aren't really on your cell phone and the cell phones really uh, hurt a lot of our. Uh, connections with you know with teens or you know even their connections amongst each other is, there's not a lot of depth in those uh, you know text or you know social media so uh, so a lot of this important conversations I always make sure that I'm doing it person to person best I can and then uh, you know go f- go from there if it's not possible then for sure Skype so I can at least because uh, we we communicate with our Nonverbals too in our expressions. So, um, and then uh, anyway, yeah, I, I'm really cautious, and uh, you know, I don't put a lot of value in uh, um, social media as far as uh, developing deep connections. And to be a leader, you you have to connect at the heart level. So that's that's where our value, especially for a Christian leader, you have to connect at that 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 level at some point. So. Well, I really honor what you do with the kids, and I have another question. Do you think that we as a society got away from our values, sitting down at the table, eating with our kids, putting those values in there, and we're pretty much leaving our kids to the – to the realm of hoping that they figure it out because you said a really key statement the parents should be able to help their kids the dreams but in this day and age it's more single parent households than ever and there's not a time when we sit down to eat dinner at the family table and when we did that when i was growing up when you talked about the brother wall i was in the sixth grade when it came down so i know exactly what you was talking about so oh, yeah. it's one of these kind of things that uh do you think that with us not having these healthy conversations with our families, 
at the dinner table. That's why we as a country is really way, I don't want to use the word to offend anybody, but I feel like we in the left in the minefield because nobody is loving on nobody like they should be. How do you feel about that? Oh, yeah, I'm uh, very much on the same page as you there. I think, uh, you know, that sitting down together, that was one of our rules that we're going to have dinner together. And uh, so that's a, a critical time, you know. And uh, But, you know, and then for parents, you know, with work schedules or whatever too, but you have to figure out what your time is to connect with each of your, your children there, especially to help, help them grow and help them achieve, you know, who they're supposed to become. So. So I want to thank you again, Dr. Tom, for your contribution, for your story. Unfortunately, we are way out of time. Uh, <laughs> okay. it on. Thank you for your questions. Yes, I have to end this. I'm not even – it was it was absolute pleasure. I appreciate yeah. you. Thank you for all you uh, do. Uh, all right. Thanks, Marilee. Thanks, Pastor Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.